Welcome to the One and O podcast, hosted by Joe Cook and Brad Kellner. The One and O podcast is part of Everyone Gets a Trophy podcast channel. Be sure to listen not only to our show, but to the Everyone Gets a Trophy podcast, hosted by Kevin Dunn and Scipio Text. Please also rate, subscribe, and review wherever you get your podcasts. And be sure to send us an email at everyonegetsatrophy at gmail.com with the number one. That's everyonegetsatrophy at gmail.com if you have any questions, comments, or anything else you'd like to tell us. Of course, the One and O podcast would not be possible without these great sponsors. Yeah, audio-visual consultations, 512-255-8678, the phone number to call when you want the home TV setup of your dreams. AV Consultations, the best in the business, locally owned and operated for more than three decades here in Central Texas. Indoors or outdoors, whatever type of TV setup you want, AV Consultations will take care of you. Go to avconsultations.com for more. And the One to Know podcast is also brought to you by Altstadt Brewery, Altstadt Beer. It is German here, German beer made here, brewed locally in Central Texas, available wherever you shop for beer across the state of Texas, now available in the DFW Metroplex and the Houston area as well. Make sure you pick up a six-pack or a 15-pack or a tall boy of Altstadt beer next time you're at the store. It is Altstadt beer. No impurities, no regrets. So where did you uh, get to watch this game? Did you watch it at the station before uh, hosting the post-game show, the official post-game show, or did you uh, did you get to watch it like so many other people, at least uh, 75,000 or 85,000 that normally would have been in a Texas stadium, that many more uh, with your home setup at provided by uh, Tom McKay. I actually watched at the station. We had a little live commentary thing going on. So it was Aaron Hogan, Rod Babers, and myself sort of giving our live thoughts about Texas and UTEP in real time. We streamed it on the Horns Facebook page. So I watched it at the station. I had uh, the Horns game on one screen. I also had the Stars Vegas Golden Knights (laughs) game four on another screen. It made for a pretty eventful night of sports watching and a pretty dang good night of sports watching for one BK. Yeah, exactly. What what did you kind of sense? I mean, did you get a chance to kind of listen and maybe hear some of the the differences in atmosphere that were were obvious at the stadium? I can go on about what I saw. Uh, luckily, I was able to be in the press box. But what did you kind of get from from the stadium? I mean, look, these non conference cupcakes are always pretty low energy. Uh, no matter what, but did, what were your impressions just as far as the TV product? Well, I kind of want to see to you on that. I mean, Longhorn Network, you had some crowd noise, obviously, with the 25%. You could hear it. Now, you couldn't hear it as loud as you would hear a normally packed DKR Texas Memorial Stadium, but you could hear some crowd noise. You could also hear some pumped-in music. There was no band, obviously, but you heard some pumped-in band songs playing throughout the game as well, so it didn't sound quite as loud as it normally would on television, but... Man, I'm more interested in what you have to say since you were actually in attendance. You were one of the lucky 20 or so thousand who got to make their way to DKR. What were uh, your takeaways from the in-game atmosphere on Saturday? So as far as, you know, regular going and sitting in your seat, I don't know a whole lot about that. I didn't really get to walk the concourse. Uh, when I walked into the stadium, Bevo Boulevard did not exist. Uh, there was nothing going on there uh, along San Jacinto. Uh, the Alumni Center, nothing going on there. Uh, just, you know, a couple shops, basically. Y- y'all didn't even have y'all's pregame setup out there where, no. where Kevin and, and, and all those guys normally are posted up. So it was way different. Um, the energy inside, I think a lot of people and a lot of people on Inside Texas noticed this as well. 
it was different without the band. It, it really is that punk, that piped in band music um, isn't the same. And I believe either Chris Del Conte or Drew Martin, uh, one of his uh, assistant athletic directors, said something on Twitter recently that you know we built this stadium and the speaker system uh, to be handled with a hundred thousand people in there. So <laughs> having fifteen thousand people like they did have, it was going to be a little bit louder. As far as energy, there really wasn't a lot of you know moments for the crowd to get super up and active on like a third down or stuff like that on, on pivotal third downs uh, just because, you know, it was, it was UTEP. I, I don't want this to sound mean. And so I, I but it was kind of basically like a, you know, it, it seems like a football game you go to without much attention. You know, if you've got 80,000 people there, uh, you're going to have some peer pressure to make some noise no matter what. But if you can sit in, you know, section 16, row 40, and just kind of time and watch the game, you really don't have much incentive to get up and, you know, obviously yell at they, they tried to be very as, as restrictive, not restrictive, but they tried to be as stringent and keep to medical standards with mask wearing as much as possible. And, you know, if you're going to take that off to yell, well, it doesn't really help. You're spreading a lot of spittle around by hmm. doing that, even if you don't realize it. So yeah, it was dead. I don't want to give it the, uh, the low water mark of a JV football game, but mm. that's kind of the words that came came to mind. Just there wasn't there was a lot of applause and, and good job, but there wasn't it just wasn't very active. And you know, I, it's that's something that the team's going to have to deal with all year. Um, I also think that as better games come to DKR, uh, there's going to be more people. You know, I, I think they'll get a few more than that fifteen thousand because I don't think they were at full sellout. 25% capacity with that. So I'm curious to see, but man, it's, it's a noticeable difference. And, uh, you know, it's, it's a shame that, you know, so many people weren't able to see what a really good product the Longhorns put on the field, at least as far as a week one opponent. Yep. Amid a pandemic, all those things applying uh, this most most recent Saturday. So what about the first touchdown of the game, right? The first play of the game, Sam Ellinger to Josh Moore, 78 yards for the score. What was the crowd like there? Because, I mean, this game was over early on, right? It was 28 to nothing after the first. It was 45-3 to at halftime. So not a lot of pivotal moments where you really needed to make some noise, as you mentioned. But for the first touchdown of the game, was it, was it at least loud and, and kind of raucous in that place? And also in between the third and fourth quarter when they play the Walter Cronkite What Starts Here Changes the World commercial, which for some reason, I know that's a very popular tradition amongst Texas fans, but for some reason that's like the loudest cheer of every game. I think it's cool that people cheer for it. I don't think it's cool that sometimes that is louder than in-game actual action cheers that we have at DKR, but uh, was there at least some noise for both of those things? Yeah, definitely, and I think even even Tom Herman uh, appreciates the importance of that commercial because I always notice this that every player on the sideline uh, does what the fans do and puts their horns up during the during that commercial. So, um, and and then as far as Josh Moore, yeah, there was I think there were some people kind of surprised uh, that that was how the season opened. I mean, who expects a seventy-eight yard touchdown pass to a, a player that was suspended all of last season? to be the first thing that happens. I think some people maybe wanted a little bit more of an extended peek at, at what the offense would have looked like. And, you know, they got to look. They got to look real quick right there, especially with the way the rest of the game went. But, yeah, there was definitely some energy there. And uh, you could hear people or see people standing up and cheering and being happy for not only Josh Moore, but that the Longhorns are back and scored. But 
Josh Moore, that kind of starts us with, uh, you know, where we can go as far as this game was. Josh Moore was, what, I believe one of six or seven receivers uh, to haul in touchdown passes on Saturday, from mostly from Sam Ellinger, a few from Casey Thompson. Uh, Ten receivers uh, also ended up catching balls. And, you know, I kind of had this thought. There's a line in Talladega Nights that says, yeah, you can't have two number ones because, you know, otherwise you'd, you'd have 11. Um, hmm. Texas really did not have a number one receiver coming into this season. A lot of people thought it would be Brennan Eagles, but that has not come to fruition. Maybe Tariq Black becomes that. What, what do you think of uh, Texas spreading the ball around a lot uh, this most recent weekend and helping Sam Ellinger break some records in the first half and uh, a little bit more in one series in the second half. Oh, I absolutely loved it. And it kind of caught me off guard, to be completely honest, right? Because we've known Tom Herman's identity during his first three years at Texas. He wants to run the power spread. And in a perfect world in the past, Tom Herman wants to run the ball as often as he can, right? We know he's undefeated as a head coach when his teams get 40 or more carries in a game. And especially in games like this against UTEP when you're the far superior opponent, Tom Herman usually likes to establish his dominance with the ground game. So I kind of figured we would get a heavy, heavy dose of that three-headed monster in the backfield that I think we're all excited about. Instead, we got almost the exact opposite, right? How about the first half play calling? 32 pass attempts, 14 rushes for Texas on Saturday. Now, they scored 45 points, so it worked perfectly well, but I was surprised, pleasantly surprised, with the play calling and the fact that so many of those receivers were able to get involved. And Tom Herman said it after the game. I think he echoed it again in his game week press conference on Monday that, yeah, he wanted to give those guys some confidence early on. And no better team on your schedule to build confidence against than UTEP. So I absolutely love to see it, starting with that Joshua Moore touchdown. I've been high on him. I called him kind of an X factor and a potential breakout star for this football team. You know, at times, Joe, there were practice reports from you guys at Inside Texas and from some other folks out there that said Josh Moore was like the most impressive receiver Texas had. Even though he couldn't play in a game last year, he was still able to participate in most of the practices. And by all accounts, he looked really, really good. So I was excited about him going into the season. He showed out on Saturday. Good to see Tariq Black show up on Saturday. And it's a lot of the outside receivers, right? I mean, I I think uh, even though there's no experience with the H guys, just considering how much that position has meant the last couple of years with Devin DuVernay last year and LJ Humphrey in 2018, yeah, I think a lot of folks figured that, okay, whoever's in that H spot is going to produce. And, man, Jake Smith and Jordan Winnington, those guys are really talented. So those are probably going to be your most consistent, stable receivers that you have. Maybe that will play out over the course of time, but I was also pleased that it was so many of the outside guys who got a lot of action and had a lot of production on Saturday. So really, really impressed. I know the level of competition was really, really bad, but have to love what you saw from uh, from the wide receivers and this passing game on Saturday night. Yeah, those outside guys got a good chance to be highlighted because, you know, we had talked about what personnel were we going to see mostly uh, from Texas early on in the season. And, you know, there had been some lingering depth issues, especially after you take Tariq Black out, or excuse me, uh, take Troy O'Meary out. And then as as we will get into a little bit more later, uh, you lose Jordan Whittington for a few weeks. Uh, There was some depth problems at slot receiver. And I think, you know, of course, he deserves it, but Kai Money playing and playing a significant amount of snaps, uh, not just getting that one touchdown catch, but getting four catches there. Um, I think that kind of shows that there is a little bit of a 
depth problem at eight, just two of those guys are injured. So you saw a lot of 12 personnel, and when Texas goes into 12 personnel, uh, they take the H off the field and leave those outside receivers. And those outside receivers did a pretty darn good job of getting open. They were schemed open, and that is something that you and I will probably rejoice over, the mm-hmm. fact that it wasn't just telling six six Colin Johnson, who can do this, but it would be a lot easier if he had other options, hey, go win this jump ball. The Brendan Schooler touchdown, I think, might be one of the better examples of this. Yeah, uh, Texas saw that there was just, hey, there is one corner out here against this guy uh, who is experienced. We don't know a ton about him, but you know he's experienced. He's played in multiple offenses and is a great booster of depth for that wide receiver room. Texas saw he was in one-on-one coverage on the outside. Uh, he had already picked up a reception, I believe, on the drives uh, a couple of plays before. And they said, hey, there's our guy. Let's let, him, let's let him run a stop route real quick, get him the ball, and see what happens. And that's exactly what happened. He avoided the one guy over there, and he was able to motor his way to the end zone. So, yeah, the, the outside receivers were definitely highlighted, obviously because they were mostly receivers, the only receivers on the field at some point. Um, and I think you have to circle back a little bit and give some credit to the tight end room for what they were able to do. Uh, but, yeah, you, you saw outside receivers starting to get schemed open, mm-hmm. which is not something you saw a lot of under Tom Herman's play-calling tenure in the past couple of years. Yeah, agreed 100%. And I also think that Texas has a lot more to show, right? Uh, I think they were pretty vanilla in terms of play-calling and in terms of personnel packages throughout most of Saturday. They don't want to reveal a whole lot, right? They want to keep some stuff under wraps for the conference games on their schedule. The fact that they were still able to look really good, still able to scheme guys open, and I think not show a whole lot, right? Not tip their hand that much, I think is a really, really good sign for the future of this offense. And you're right, good call, shouting out the tight ends. Now, I think you and I have both been very skeptical. I know I've been very, very skeptical about what to expect from that position group this year. We saw a lot of 12 personnel on Saturday. I'm curious to see if that's, you know, just because of the wide receiver depth issues that you mentioned or if that's something we're going to see more of moving forward. But the tight ends did look pretty good. Cade Brewer caught a touchdown. Brayden Lebrock had a couple of catches as well. So the 12 personnel, I was excited about that. Now, I want different personnel packages, and I think I would I think I would still prefer 10 personnel and 20 personnel over something with two tight ends on the field at the same time. But the fact that Tom Herman, who has been so married to 11 personnel, one back and one tight end over his first three years, the fact that he was willing to change some things and shake some things up, I think is a really, really good sign moving forward. So, yeah, I mean, loved what I saw from Mike Yersich and, and loved what I saw from Tom Herman, and I think that marriage is going to be a really, really good one. And obviously it lets Tom Herman focus on some of the other game day responsibilities that have kind of gone by the wayside over the last couple of years when he's been calling plays. So, so far, one for one, and it's hard to really give this offense and this offensive coaching staff anything short of an A-plus for what they were able to pull off, especially in the first half. You know, you mentioned that word marriage, and, you know, we are the foremost experts, I believe, on the Texas beat about marriage um, (laughs) because we know so much about it. But as far as I know, uh, there is a lot of compromise in it. And one thing I did notice is that, yes, Mike Yersich, of course, had his fingerprints all over this offense. There were a lot of formations that we didn't see last year, alignments, moving guys around, all different sorts of things that you would expect when a new offensive coordinator comes in. But, there were some aspects of the Tom Herman play calling tenure. Uh, I think he saw uh, the formations that worked 
in his tenure were still around. So it wasn't just a complete overhaul. I think it was a good combination. And, you know, you saw that uh, right in, in pretty much up and down the field on offense yesterday. So, yeah, and I agree. Uh, I'd like to see some more, some more personnel going forward, but there's no reason to really show anything else other than those two main ones of 11 and 12 when you can go ahead and throw for, what, 400-something yards in the first half. I mean, let's go into that point at, at this at this juncture. Sam Ellinger, um, if he wanted to start a Heisman campaign, uh, he did a really good job of it <laughs> in the first half that he played in plus one series uh, that they gave him just to kind of get his feet wet coming out, out coming out after halftime and playing with adjustments. But you know, in a day where the Big Twelve either struggled or had a massive quarterback game. Uh, it was nice to be in that latter category and not in the former category like Iowa State, Kansas State, and Kansas. Yeah, Sam was ridiculous on Saturday night, and I almost think we take that dude for granted at times. But what he did on Saturday was nothing short of magnificent. 24 of 32 for 426 yards, excuse me, 429 yards in the first half. He actually ended with 426. So on that one series he played in the second half, he lost three yards passing but in the first half 24 of 32 429 and five touchdowns those 429 yards the most in a half in school history those five touchdowns to five different wide receivers he was incredible on Saturday night and I think my favorite part of Sam Ellinger's performance is what he said after the game he said quote to tell the you to tell you the truth I'm actually pretty disappointed I left a lot of throws out there that I should have made I can't wait for the bye week to continue to get better, but I left a lot out there, and I've got to do better, end quote. So despite putting on a historic performance, Sam Ellinger is still critiquing his game, and he's still saying, no, I've got a lot of work to do. I have to be better for this team to get where they need to get this year. I love that about 11. He's a grinder, and I think he's a great team leader. Love to see him start the way he did, and he's getting a little bit of love on the Heisman front, too. I saw, uh, according to Sportsline, his Heisman odds went from plus 1,200 to plus 850 after his Week 1 performance. So you obviously don't win the Heisman Trophy in Week 1, but Sam Ellinger garnered a lot of attention from the national pundits because of how well he played on Saturday night. Man, that that quote after the game is just such peak football stuff, and I'm so (laughs) glad that we have that type of thing back. Yeah, You know, battling adversity, getting better. You know, I know he means it sincerely, but it's we hear it so often that we missed it for a little bit, too. That's the other thing. So it's nice to have that back. Like you mentioned, he played really, really well uh, in, in, in his very limited performance. Um, he didn't run the ball, I think, what, more than three times. He was protected all night. Uh, the offensive line does have some kinks to work out, but as far as keeping Sam Ellinger upright, They did everything pretty darn well in that regard, and he did not take on very many hits. But before we go, uh, offensive line is round out the offense. Casey Thompson played pretty darn well, I thought. He was 4 of 7, I believe, uh, had a, a, what, one or two touchdown passes, uh, and a couple of his incompletions were definitely not on him. Threw a good ball, had it drop drop from Marcus Washington, I believe. Mm Mm-hmm. So uh, Casey Thompson has kind of been a question mark just because he hasn't played. I think we mentioned that a couple of episodes ago, but it's good to see that he was able to go in and perform pretty admirably. They ran the offense for him, as Scipio Tex noted in in his postmortems on Inside Texas. They didn't just have him out there to hand the ball off to that three-headed monster. 
they gave him some real reps running the real offense. And they, they toned it back, too, a little bit with Hudson Card, who got in very, very late. Uh, but, hey, guess what? Hudson Card now has experience with the binder. And they went for it on fourth down. I think they came <laughs> up with it, if I remember right, no. with Hudson Card at the helm. Uh, but, you know, I, I really enjoyed how Texas was able to get its backup quarterbacks um, playing in a game where, you know, red shirt and eligibility stuff doesn't really matter this year, all that different stuff. And they let them run the offense and actually, you know, simulate what might happen should they have to be thrust into real game action during conference play. Yeah, I think that was my second biggest goal going into the game on Saturday was to get Hudson Card some playing time, right? You knew Casey Thompson was going to play, but if you're Texas, you wanted to be that much in control to where Casey Thompson could get a few series, he could get some reps, and then you'd be up by so much that you'd be able to sneak Hudson late in the fourth quarter, which is exactly what happened. Now, number one was injuries, and unfortunately, Texas had a couple stemming from that game that we'll get to here in a second. But, yeah, I thought Casey Thompson looked very poised, looked very confident, looked very comfortable. Did have a couple of misses early on. You mentioned the drop by Marcus Washington. That didn't help. But did have a couple of overthrows, so maybe there was some nervousness there. But in terms of standing in the pocket, he looked calm. And in terms of just having a grasp and a feel of this offense, he looked like he had done it a million times. So love to see that from Casey Thompson. You know, it's such a luxury to have that dude, right? You think of programs like Texas these days in the age of the transfer portal when, you know, guys, the minute they don't get the starting job— They put their name in the portal and they leave. It is so rare at any program, but especially a program like the University of Texas, to where you have a third-year guy as a backup quarterback. Now, for this team to get where they want to get, for them to win the Big 12 and compete for a spot in the college football playoff, they got to have number 11. There's no doubt about that. But it's good that if something were to happen for Sam for a half or a quarter, I knock on wood that it doesn't. You've got an experienced guy with some in-game playing time, a guy who knows the offense, a guy who knows the system, knows his teammates to step in if need be. So love that Casey got some playing time. Loved it even more that uh, he looked better. And once again, hopefully he's not needed. Hopefully he does get some more playing time if Texas can take care of business against what seems to be a really, really down Big 12 this year. But uh, if he is needed, uh, it seems like he's he's good enough and comfortable enough to uh, to at least keep this thing afloat. What do you think about the offensive line? I mean, obviously we talked about the stats and, and zero uh, stacks, and I think they eclipsed 100 yards rushing on the game with those three running backs or were close to it. Um, but, you know, they weren't super – impressive I would say I mean I think of a 59 to 3 win it's hard to really nitpick that much but there wasn't any just like bulldozing really going on and I think uh you know it it may be something that we have to see happen as and and develop as Denzel Okafor starts to settle more into playing right guard and Christian Jones who I think played pretty well but still has a lot of room to go starts to get his feet wet in the conference play. So what do you think of the, the offensive line, not only that first unit, um, but some of the second guys that were able to get in and get some playing time? I actually thought they played really well. Uh, I think I'm higher on their performance than you are, Joe. Now, I don't disagree with you. I mean, there weren't a surreal number of pancakes or bulldozing, to use your term, going on on Saturday night. But, uh, no, they kept Sam Ellinger upright. They kept him protected, which is good. And they averaged more than six yards a carry on the ground. So, no, the right side of the offensive line wasn't dominant, and you mentioned Kristen Jones. I mean, it definitely looked like a guy making his first career start. I think there were a couple of plays that he would like to have back, but overall, for the most part, I thought Texas did what they were supposed to do, 
uh, and that's dominate a team like UTEP, right? I mean, of course, the skill position players, you've got a huge difference on the outside when you're playing a team with that little talent, but you really notice the difference in talent on the lines of scrimmage and in the trenches. And I thought, you know, for the most part, Texas on the offensive line did what they were supposed to do. I like that they got some extra guys playing time. Kind of weird to see Isaiah Hookfin in there, right? I mean, he didn't start the game, but uh, he got some reps in the second half. I just thought he was hurt, right? That was a guy who was competing for a starting job, got hurt relatively late in camp. I just kind of assumed, I guess, that uh, that he was going to be out for this game on Saturday. So I like that he got in there as well, and I like that the entire second unit and some third-string guys got in there too to get that invaluable game experience. But, uh, Joe, I thought for the most part, maybe not a, a super-dominant performance by the offensive line, but I thought they were uh, really, really good. Yeah, as far as Hickson goes, remember, this is a guy that we thought uh, would be competing for a starting right guard spot. And, you know, he injured his shoulder in, a, uh, in preseason camp. I think the perspective was, the prospectus was that he'd be back in time, and luckily he was. But, you know, when he went in, he was playing right tackle. Uh, so that's interesting to see. On, and the other thing was we talked about how Tom Herman kind of has a top six to eight and doesn't always, always reflect. Uh, you know, what's on the depth chart, you know, if a guy went down, it may not be the guy literally right behind him, but, you know, they would piece things together to make sure it was, you know, the next best offensive lineman in the game. But it was different this time. Uh, the only exception when the second – so let me try to phrase this the right way. When the second team offensive line went in, it was basically the entire second team on the depth chart uh, with the exception, I believe, of Tyler Johnson, who did not suit up for the game. Uh, and that's where you saw, I believe, Hookston go in. Uh, I think, if I remember right, it went freshman Andre Karich, uh, the second left tackle. Um, and then, let's see, Rafidi Gramai at left guard, Jake Majors at center, Tope Mod at right guard, and then Isaiah Hookston at right tackle. So it held pretty true towards the uh, towards the actual depth chart. Um, that's impressive. This, I, I think the, uh, the freshman down there, Majors and... Parrish did a pretty solid job in their limited action, and uh, that's you know that's another huge benefit to pulling out this team is with you know even with the four game redshirt rule in a normal world taking advantage of one of those games, but you know eligibility being what it is in 2020 with the NCAA, there's no there's no downside to getting those guys action, and I think they did a pretty good job and good job on the coaches to getting them in there for this. Yeah, I agree 100%. And that was, you know, one of the goals for me, one of the goals for you. I think one of the goals for this coaching staff is just take care of business enough to where you can give everybody reps because, you know, it's tough to keep everybody healthy over the course of a 10 game season, right? I guess a little bit easier over 10 games versus 12. But especially on the offensive line, uh, those guys notoriously get banged up. So the fact that you were able to get those second string guys into the game, give them some actual playing time, get their feet wet a little bit. I think is uh, is really, really good. So pleasant, uh, just a great day for the offense, man. It was so nice not to stress really about anything. I know UTEP is horrible, but the way the rest of the Big 12 played on Saturday, you know, there was a part of me that was like, uh-oh, like, is this thing going to be close into the second quarter, maybe into the third quarter? Like, Are we going to be biting our nails and freaking out and having a whole bunch of stuff to yell and complain about after this one? It's really nice to have just a, a stress-free easy win the Longhorns just took care of business and uh, really started on offense hey there's there's always plenty to find the yell and complain about when it comes to football or else there wouldn't be a profession like coaching I believe but <laughs> uh, any more any more parting shots on offense you ready to move to the uh, other side of the ball 
Uh, no, I don't think so. Just uh, tip of the cap to Sam once again. I mentioned his Heisman odds, but also being named the Walter Camp Offensive Player of the Week. That's a national award, and then also being named the Big 12 Offensive Player of the Week. So just wanted to throw that in there if anybody missed it. Just a, a great performance by number 11, one of many during his time at Texas. All right, so on to the defense. Chris Ash's debut, uh, a lot of different debuts, uh, 4 2 5. Uh, DeMarvion overshone at linebacker, Josh Thompson playing corner. And I think we can get into all those different aspects, but here's what I didn't notice. And I remember last year after the Louisiana Tech game, this was one of the glaring issues, tackling. It was a non-issue. Yeah, of course, it's football. There's going to be some times when you miss tackles. But there was really no point during that game or after that game where I came away thinking, oh, man, you know, there were too many missed tackles at this point. Or, you know, they did, they did this wrong and this wrong and this wrong. That was just a solid aspect of the game that was so solid it was almost forgettable, in my opinion. Yeah, no, that's, uh, that's a great point, right? I think this team missed 171 or 172 tackles last year, which was amongst the worst in Power 5. They were terrible. I mean, everything about this defense was awful, right? One of the best, one of the worst, excuse me, in school history, one of the worst in all of college football a year ago. And I think a huge part of that was the tackling or lack thereof. You know, we had heard about this from Chris Ash, right? We had heard about it from his time at Ohio State. We heard about it from his time at Rutgers. And we heard about it this offseason after Texas made the hire. He's all about the fundamentals and he's all about the rugby style tackling. And so far, one for one, right? A really, really good performance by Texas in terms of tackling. I mean, everything went right defensively. They gave up three points, which uh, I don't care who you're playing against. To keep a team out of the end zone for a full 60 minutes is really, really good. But yeah, I think that was one of the most notable, noticeable things, and notable things, as a matter of fact, with this defense is that they were pretty sure tackling on, uh, on Saturday night, which hopefully will continue throughout the course of the season. So moving into position by position, we will start up front where games are won and lost, according to both Brad Kellner and Chris Ash. And the debut of, like I mentioned, a lot of different debuts at 425, that four man front that had Joseph Osai basically looking like he was about to throw a punch from that jack position in that stance the whole time. Uh, they played pretty well. Uh, only two sacks, um, which, you know, it, like, is, is and isn't fully indicative of pass rush, uh, but, you know, the UTEP offense was not able to go anywhere at all, uh, either via the pass game or the run game, uh, during the time that it was even close to competitive. Uh, you saw a lot of different rotation on the defensive line. You saw uh, Joseph Osai, like I mentioned, get some moves on some left tackles that made them look silly. You saw Reese Lato playing in his first game on the defensive side of the ball performed pretty well. Um, so Mauro Jomo did not see Jacoby Jones, who was out due to a family issue, I believe. Uh, so you saw a lot of, honestly, some different looks with two jacks on the field and two uh, defensive line, like the, the three tech and the uh, strong side defensive end out there. You saw some, a few different looks, but overall, the, the top four guys of Joseph Osai, Keandre Coburn, Jaquan Graham, and Moro Jomo, I thought, played solid. Nothing super spectacular, but, uh, you know, they. I think they were able to reach some of the benefits and create some problems for the UTEP running game that maybe they would not have been able to do if there were only three of those guys out there on the field last year. 
I think the word you used is the right word, solid. They were solid on Saturday night, and I'm a little disappointed. Like, you got to get real nitpicky to find things to mm-hmm. complain about when you win 59-3. to uh, You really have to search hard, and it almost feels like you're reaching any time you complain about anything. But if there, if there is one thing that kind of stood out to me in terms of disappointment, it is the defensive line and more specifically the pass rush. Now, UTEP did a pretty good job of trying to get the ball out of their quarterback's hands quickly, uh, but only two sacks for Texas, and they both came pretty late when UTEP had their backup quarterback and probably some backup offensive linemen in the game. And only two quarterback hits, too, right? Sometimes sacks, I say it all the time, it's an overrated stat. You got to look at pressures, you got to look at hits. I just didn't think the pass rush was that great on Saturday for Texas. And this is far and away, I know Kansas is on the schedule, but still, bear with me. This is far away the worst offensive line that the Longhorns are going to go up against. And with all the hype, all the enthusiasm about this defensive line going into the year, I don't want to say they played bad. They were solid. They were good. They were very good. But I, I, I would have just loved to have seen a little bit more pressure uh, when UTEP was dropping back and throwing the football on Saturday. You you wanted domination. I, I mean, wanted domination. Kind of yeah, yeah, it's kind of like what you said on the offensive line, right? You were looking for a little bit more domination. I was looking for a little bit more domination on Saturday. But they played discipline. Uh, they kept contain on the edges. The interior, I thought, was very disruptive, right? They held UTEP to like 40-something rushing yards over the entire game, only a yard, a yard and a half per carry. So they were, like, really, really good. But, uh, yeah, I wanted, I wanted more domination in the passing game. That's a great way to put it. We may be able to see that uh, in the next couple of weeks versus Texas Tech because of their struggles. But we'll, <laughs> we'll get into that. At linebacker, though, uh, some surprising news at the starting spot. We knew that Jawan Mitchell and Court Jock were – uh, the two guys really did it out at that middle linebacker position along with Ayodele and Dayway. Uh, but when that first series marched on the field, it was DeMarvin Overshone, that big zero at Will linebacker and Court Jock playing middle linebacker. And I, basically, the way I kind of look at this game is there wasn't a super dominant unit individually, and I think to continue off of what we just talked about, uh, there wasn't a, an extremely dominant unit individually. I think of any of them, the defensive secondary was the one that kind of shut things down better than uh, any other unit. But when you put solid plus solid plus solid all together, um, that's winning at all three levels, and you're going to have an easy time there. And, of course, that is made easy for the linebackers and the people in front of them and the people behind them are doing well. They can go and track uh, but I really thought that you know, we, we kind of know what we have a little bit in court jock. This is his second straight start. We saw what he did in the Alamo Bowl. We know that there's probably a few guys tougher in that locker room than him, but that he doesn't have some of the athletic gifts that guys like uh, DeMarvin Overshone and, and Juwan Mitchell might have. Uh, but I thought they played pretty well, and I, I tried to track DeMarvin as much as I could. Um, it looked like he was – playing pretty well and kind of had a grasp with the, and had a grasp on the position. Um, and it sounds like he enjoyed it because after the game, you saw him take social media, go to Twitter and say something like, you know what, I'm really enjoying this linebacker thing. Mm. And he's kind of said as much today uh, on Tuesday, I believe, in a uh, – yeah, Tuesday. Sorry, it all runs together. Um, <laughs> when he was available on Zoom with the media, he said in, in the spring he was talking with Chris Ash and – that he's like, what's, what's the best thing for me to do in this defense? And, you know, obviously being, playing at the next level, what the next level is looking for uh, is a part of that decision calculus, but also what's the best for Texas. 
And Chris Ash and DeMarvion came to the conclusion that moving him to linebacker was, was the right call. And he had some experience. Remember when he first got onto campus, he played a little bit of rover uh, due to some injuries in Todd Orlando's defense. Um, but he was basically told that I'm basically doing safety things, but closer to the line of scrimmage. And I think that's kind of the play style you're going to see from him. And I think you saw that uh, from him on Saturday against UTEP. Yeah, I agree. I really like the way he played. And he was flying all over the field. I mean, he made one really, really good play. I think it was a pitch uh, that UTEP tried, and DeMarvion Overshone kind of ran halfway across the field, was able to set the edge and make the play on the outside. I loved what I saw from him. And, man, he can be a really, really special player. Just need him on the field, right? Every time he's been able to stay on the field, we've seen flashes of brilliance from DeMarvion Overshone. We saw more of that on Saturday in his first game playing linebacker. So glad he got those reps. Obviously a shortened offseason. Didn't get the spring to really hone his craft and learn that linebacker spot. But I thought he played really, really well. And I'm excited about him moving forward as he takes that Will linebacker spot. And, yeah, I mean, that's – it's kind of what you need in this conference, right? You want your linebackers to be able to go side to side. You want them to be able to have speed. You want them to be able to cover guys in space as well. So the fact that DeMarvion, number zero, has all that experience playing safety, I think will bode really, really well in this conference. So I loved how he played. And then Korjaquist, as you mentioned, a little surprised that he got the start, right? I mean, Jawan Mitchell was uh, was listed first on the depth chart. That's the second straight game where Korjaquist was not first on the depth chart, but uh, he got the start for the Longhorns, and he held his own. And I think uh, we're going to talk about this a little bit on the show today, Joe, but I think you know Tom Herman deserves a lot of credit for this. Now, he hasn't done everything right since he took over at Texas. There's no doubt about that. But what he's done with the walk-on program is really, really impressive. You don't always think of stuff like that at Texas, right? I mean, uh, usually a place like Texas, you focus on your scholarship guys, the blue chip guys. Those are the guys you want playing more often than not. But the fact that Texas has created some depth with their walk-ons, guys like Court Jaquist, guys like Kai Money, who caught a touchdown pass on Saturday, guys like Jet Bush, who got a lot of playing time on Saturday. Like You don't want to rely too heavily on those guys, but the fact that you have walk-ons and depth pieces that you feel pretty good about if needed. I think uh, Tom Herman deserves a lot of credit for not just kind of poo-pooing the notion of walk-ons and uh, actually focusing on getting good ones and developing them once they get here. Jaquist, I'll get it right. (laughs) Hey, you're not the only one, man. I feel like I'm in the minority, and I almost think, like, the way I get, the way I say it is the way it's spelled or the way it's pronounced on uh, on TexasSports.com, right? They've got the audible pronunciation, and it says Jaquist. So I think I'm Look saying it right. Call on pronunciation. It, Look at you making the call on pronunciation. I know. Now. Well, I'm always right. Nobody else knows how to pronounce anything. That's not my problem, Joe. Come on, man. But, uh, like, nobody else says Jaquist, so I almost feel like the website is wrong, which is making me wrong. Like, I don't even know who to believe anymore. Well, we can believe he had a pretty solid game at linebacker. Uh, we also know who got in behind him. Like you mentioned, Juwan Mitchell uh, saw some action, more limited action, uh, but still did get into the game. Uh, also, I saw Dave Benda, who uh, had a solid game. And I always thought it was one of the more promising linebacker prospects. I did not like that they moved him uh, to running back for a few games last year, but depth kind of necessitated that. And it kind of appears he's going to be the guy to back up to Marvin Overshone. So, uh, I thought he played pretty well. Um, I really can't think of much else with the linebackers. You know, if, if they cleaned up what the defensive line wasn't able to do. And I think, as we'll mention a lot, and hopefully we'll get a little a little bit away from it as the weeks go on, but 
man, that new system really does help everybody out, everybody else a lot. Uh, going back, let's go back to the secondary. And I think we have to talk about uh, who wasn't out there for the second half uh, for all of it because he decided to, you know, take a little breather. Uh, went AWOL, to, to be honest with you, when B.J. Foster uh, basically left the game in, in the second half and went to the locker room and basically just kind of quit. And it was reported on Sunday that, yeah, that he had quit. Uh, it was also reported on Sunday that uh, – he was listening, and you know we at Inside Texas we heavily doubted that he was going to leave the program. Not because, not just because of uh, his talent level, but also because it, it was out of character for him. And I think Tom Herman put it really, really well on Monday uh, when he said that you know it's okay to be frustrated, but we can't let our frustration consume us or something along those lines. And I think that was what happened with B.J. Foster, um, just being honestly behind Chris Brown and Caden Stearns at those positions, but he is a, at the safety positions, but, you know, he's a valuable guy and he's for, for the past few years has been a full fledged team guy. And I, I tend to believe Tom Herman when he says that uh, BJ Foster was very, very contrite and just simply let his frustration get the best of him. You know, I don't know if we can believe that that's really out of character for BJ Foster, considering the fact that earlier this off season, I punched, a car bumper and broke his hand because he was pissed that someone hit and ran him. Now, look, I get being pissed that someone hit and ran your car. That's garbage. That's BS. No one should do that. But, like, we've already seen an example in 2020 of B.J. Foster kind of letting his emotions get the best of him. And maybe that's a little apples to oranges, but, like, for me... I don't know B.J. Foster this as well. This the first time it bled over to the football. Yeah, exactly. Like I don't know, I don't know B.J. Foster nearly as well as, as the coaching staff, obviously. But like to me, I saw that and I see this, and I'm like, well, maybe this is a guy who just lets the emotions get the best of him a little bit too much. But you're right, this is the first time it happened on the football field. What a bizarre situation. I mean, uh, you know, I, I don't want to rip on the kid too much, but we're not talking about a freshman here. I mean, we're talking about a third-year guy, a junior who's 20 to 21 years old, and I know he's unhappy. He was such a highly touted recruit. He figured by year three he'd be starting for this football team. So I get that he's upset with playing time. But, man, I mean, I would understand this maybe, maybe, if your team is down by 40 and your secondary is getting roasted, right? Caden Stearns and Chris Brown, the two guys starting ahead of you, if they're playing like crap, your team is losing, and you're still not getting into the game, then I understand, okay, hey, the coaches hate me. They don't want to play me. I don't want to be a part of this thing anymore. But to do that when your team is routing your opponent, and you know you're going to get some more playing time in the second half because your team is routing the opponent, that's uh, incredibly selfish, man. And it sounds like B.J. Foster has remorse, and he was at team workouts the next day, and he talked to the coaches, and by all accounts, it's water under the bridge, right? That's what Tom Herman said in his press conference. But, man, I mean, I I know the coaches, and it sounds like his teammates are going to publicly let B.J. Foster off the hook. I'm sure he's going to have to work his ass off to get playing time, right? If he thought playing time was tough on Saturday, then, uh, oh boy, you got to wait and see what he has to do to get on the field moving forward, I would guess. But, man, I'm not going to publicly let him off the hook for that. Like, that is a really, really selfish, bad, prima donna type of bit from uh, from B.J. Foster, and it's it's disappointing, man. It really is. I, I can tell you, after having interacted with him a little bit during the recruitment process and uh, his family a little bit. That's I can I'm pretty sure that's not something that his his family is going to smile upon and support. So I, I think he, the the right voices are going to guide B.J. Foster to where he needs to go. And 
uh, as far as getting back into the full fledged, full good graces of this team. And uh, it's like Tom Herman mentioned, he thinks it's water under the bridge at this point, and uh, we'll, we'll, we will see how that happens. And hopefully, it's nothing more than for Caleb Kelly in that 2018 OU game where he apparently walked off. Uh, at halftime when Texas was beaten up on Kyler Murray. Uh, well, that, that got blown out of proportion a little bit, too, and we'll see if the same thing happens here. But I, I think that, yeah, it, it's definitely something to monitor, and I can tell that's kind of the way you're looking at it, and you're monitoring it with skepticism, and understandably so. But I think it's something that, you know, we'll see how it goes out over the next yeah. few weeks, and I think will turn out to be all right and just hopefully a one-time or maybe second and final time incident hmm. with B.J. Foster. Yeah. Uh, but with the rest of the defensive backfield, uh, like I mentioned, I think they had the strongest performance. I think you saw Chris Adamora play extremely well in an extremely difficult position. And I think you also saw Anthony Cook and Xavier Alford, his backups, perform pretty well there Perform pretty well there as well. Um, I was really excited to see number 11 after his whole portal. Uh, trip and and, or, and entering and exiting and entering and exiting, uh, go out there and make some physical plays at that spur position. That's going to be one of the tougher, like I mentioned, one of the tougher positions in this defense. And it's nice to know that at least at the one and twos, there's some pretty good competency there on a position that will be hunted by Big 12 offensive coordinators and slot receivers. Yeah, so much depth in that secondary, right? I mean, we've known that talent is not the issue back there. It's just coaching, right? Developing those guys and making them play like competent D1 cornerbacks and trying to turn this place back into DBU. Joe, we got to give a ton of credit to Jay Valai. Now, I'm sure the jury's still out on this coaching staff, right? Taking care of UTEP does not does not conceal or remove all doubt uh, about this about Tom Herman and the entirety of this new coaching staff. So I'll mention that, but man, I, I loved the DB play, especially the cornerback play. And I think Jay Valai was the most questioned assistant coaching hire that Texas had this offseason, right? Just because he had the shortest resume, the least skins on the wall, number one, and also it sort of felt like a buddy hire. You know, like he had played for Chris Ash and he had coached with Chris Ash over the last couple of years. So let's just bring in Jay Valai because Chris Ash knows him and he's got a relationship with him. And uh, Chris Ash says he's cool, so let's bring him in. Like, sometimes that works. Sometimes you're Tom Herman's original staff and you get fired after three years because it doesn't work. Right? That's how Tom Herman filled his original staff here. And, well, clearly it didn't work because most of those guys are out of work right now. So. Jay Valai was questioned. I was a little bit skeptical and curious. More curious, I think, is the right word about what we'd see from this uh, cornerback group. And they played great on Saturday. The bump and run at the line of scrimmage, I know that's a Chris Ash staple, but they looked really comfortable doing that, jamming wide receivers right at the line. And most importantly, the best part for me, Joe, they didn't panic when the ball was in the air, right? And they also looked back at the football when it was in the air. And they fought through UTEP wide receivers' hands at the po- at the catch point, at the point of contact. Like, all of those things that we did not see at all last year. And even in the non-conference games, right? Even against Louisiana Tech. I know Texas dominated. They won that game 45-14. to I also know La Tech is a way, 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 way better team than UTEP. But, man, in that game, Jamar Smith and Louisiana Tech, like, they were able to pick up chunk plays through the air. They had a bunch of passing yards, I think 300-plus. And the Texas corners, like, they looked rusty. And there were some questions about them after the game. Like, they, they they weren't playing the position real well. They were panicking when the ball was in the air. They gave up big plays. And you could maybe see some uh, some cracks in the armor 
And, of course, that armor eventually broke altogether as the season progressed. It was one of the worst pass defenses in college football. But I loved what I saw from the corners. Once again, trying to avoid making too much from one game against that type of opponent, but they played really, really well. I thought uh, Javali passed his first test with flying colors. Same here. I don't think that Josh Thompson makes that play last year or the year before or any Texas corner makes that play like he did on that interception last year or the year before. They talked, and Todd Orlando talked about this a lot. I remember asking him about it. Why are y'all struggling turning and looking for the football? And he basically, every time I'd ask him, say, well, we got to get it addressed. And that was a play where Josh Thompson was the only one who turned and looked for the football. You know, the UTEP wide receiver even had a miscommunication with uh, quarterback Gavin Hardison, or he you know, just didn't think the play was going to come his way and stopped running. That didn't happen with Josh Thompson. He kept going, kept at it. I think there was a chance he could have stayed on his feet and maybe returned it. But, hey, you got the ball. The game is about the ball, and, and that's a good stop for the defense. And he wasn't the only one that had a good, solid play on the ball. I saw Kenyatta Watson. Uh, he got, I think he had one catch happen on him, but then there was one a few plays later uh, or some, at some juncture in the game where he was down a step. The, the, wide, the minor wide receiver had a step on him, but he played the ball and timed it just right uh, to get his arm into the wide receiver's you know, basket and, and, and mess with the catch. So uh, there was some good stuff by the corners. And, yeah, like you mentioned, I completely agree with you about Jay Hawaii. I was – of all the hires, I was, I was skeptical just because he had the shortest amount of legitimate on-field – or of real on-field full-time assistant coaching time. He had, had some internships in the NFL and uh, had helped, I believe, with Curry Smart um, before he went to Rutgers and was Chris Ashes. Uh, cornerbacks coach there. Um, so, yeah, I, I agree. There was there was a very limited resume, and he is showing this year, at least in this first game, why Texas went out and got him to come with Chris Ash. Um, safeties, I think we touched on this a little bit, but Caden Stearns looked more comfortable than, you know, at any point he did last year, yeah. I felt like. And I think uh, Chris Brown, uh, you know, played solid, showed why he's a starter. Um, the guys behind him, I think, also did pretty well. Montrell Estelle got some playing time. I believe Tyler Owens did as well. So safety, you know, protected the back end, showed some different coverages, was not just straight-up press quarters. And I'm pretty sure you'll see some stuff on Inside Texas this week about that. They were definitely rotating some coverages and I think, you know, hit the minors with some different looks than they possibly had been expecting and maybe different than what Texas fans have been expecting. But – Brown and Stearns, I think it's going to be tough for those guys to – or it's going to be tough moving the ball on those guys in this system, and it looks like they're having a lot of fun doing it. Oh, no doubt. I thought they both played really, really well. And you're right, we saw some 2018 Caden Stearns on the field on Saturday, which was great to see. It's, what's the, it's what this team needs to get back to the Big 12 championship game. And, man, just there's, there's so much talent in the secondary. And hopefully the combination of Chris Ash, who's a natural safeties coach, and Jay Valai, who's a cornerbacks coach who we just talked about, like hopefully they can get the most out of this group and unlock all that potential that's there. Because when you're talking Caden Stearns and, and, and Chris Brown and hopefully B.J. Foster and Montrell Estelle and Tyler Owens and Jalen Green and Deshaun Jamison and Kenyatta Watson and Josh Thompson, and I know I'm listing these guys out of order, but the list goes on and on, like just so many highly touted recruits, so much talent back there. 
We know what they're capable of. Just find a way to unlock that potential. They look great on Saturday. Obviously, there's going to be some much tougher tests down the road in this Big 12 conference with all the great offenses and quarterbacks in this league. But, man, they looked uh, really good, really comfortable on Saturday, and it looked like they weren't stressed. They weren't worried, right? They were just kind of flying to the football Didn't feel like they were overthinking things, and that's the beauty of this Chris Ash defense. Yeah, we saw some things that I think surprised some folks, a little bit more variety and some different looks, but, man, for the most part, it's just so much simpler. It's so much simpler uh, to play in this defense, and Texas is going to have a defensive identity this year too, right? They're not going to be changing up base defenses every week like they did last year. So, yeah, I thought the safeties played really well, and once again, I don't care who you're playing against. If you hold a team out of the end zone for a full four quarters, especially when you're getting your second and third teamers in the game, uh, you did uh, just about everything right. Anything else on defense? I got like one or two thoughts on special teams before we go into the disaster that was the weekend mm. for the rest of the Big 12. No, nah, man, go ahead. I want to hear your takes on uh, on the specialists. All right. Uh, Cameron Dicker. Uh, we know he's a good college kicker, uh, and I think that's kind of all he's shown at this point in his career. He's hit some clutch kicks, uh, but there are some times when he just kind of misses the random one, and it's it hasn't been in crunch time, but there have been some just where he misses. And I think he's worthy of being having a lot of faith from Tom Herman. Of course, you know that Tom Herman is going to play the percentages as far as you know going forward on fourth down. He knows he's got a good kicker. Uh, but to be honest with you, Dicker is a good kicker. He's not a great one. He's not excellent. He's not poor. Uh, he's not average. I think he right now at this point is a good kicker. Yeah. Um, let's see, Ryan Bucheski, nothing right home, home about, good game. Um, I did notice one thing as far as on kickoff teams, and this is the type of stuff uh, that I I really like when watching a football game, is we know Tom Herman makes a lot of, puts a lot of emphasis on his special teams and plays guys who are normally starting or starters on some units. I think Chris Brown is out there on that first uh, first kickoff team. And two other guys who were out there were Jaron Thompson and Keaton Crawford, two freshman defensive bats. And on some kickoffs that Cameron Dicker uh, booted through the back of the end zone, there were two guys that chased the ball all the way to the ground, all the way, you know, 10 yards back beyond the, the back of the end zone, right by where the construction was to get it, because they their job on the play is to go and get the ball. And that was, you know, like I mentioned, Jaron Thompson and Keaton Crawford. So I just noticed that that's like small effort type things that I like to see. And I think it really speaks to those two guys' football character uh, in that regard. So pretty cool stuff. I think those are two guys that are going to be future leaders on this team. Um, especially especially Jaron Thompson. Yeah, no, I agree 100%. Well said. And, uh, yeah, feels like Dicker the kicker. He's not Justin Tucker. Obviously, Longhorn fans love him for the kick he made against Oklahoma two years ago, and he had a couple of game winners last year. So it's good that he's clutch. That's the main thing you want from your college kicker. And, hell, now we might need an NFL kickers hashtag after what Steven Goskowski did on Monday Night Football. Uh, you Look, college kickers, they're never going to be automatic you would love for Cameron Dicker to be a little bit more consistent, but uh, I got no problem with him getting his misses out of the way in a 59-3 game. As long as he uh, continues to hit the big ones, then I think you can live with it. Hopefully that consistency comes over his last two years, but uh, I- I'm not worried. I'm not ready to call that a problem by any stretch. I got you. Goskowski, man, hey, like I mentioned, made it when it counts. There you go. 
Yeah, you don't you don't want Dicker the kicker to do that, right? To go 0 for three and miss an extra point and then make a clutch field goal. You'd prefer him be a little bit more accurate, but I am glad he did see he did see one go in, right? He was one for two on Saturday, so at least he uh, at least he redeemed himself a little bit. Speaking of seeing them go in, uh, you know, being on the Longhorn Network, uh, you you might see or. If you're on any of the message boards, but especially on Inside Texas, there's always people asking, how do I watch this? And this was a game that Texas definitely wanted their their fans to see. Uh, Oklahoma, you know, starting a true freshman or a redshirt freshman phenom wide receiver. Uh, Oklahoma media is gushing over Spencer Rattler and what he's able to do. 54.95 on pay-per-view for something like that. So the two best results, for the Big 12 this weekend uh, were basically on some difficult-to-access TV channels. And, you know, that's kind of some vestiges of some old third-tier media rights uh, that were negotiated about a decade ago. But, you know, it is what it is. Oklahoma has to play a game on pay-per-view, and Texas has to play one to two games per year on the Longhorn Network. For the rest of the Big 12, at least on Saturday, they're playing in nationally televised football games. One of those nationally televised football games was Kansas State losing to Arkansas State. Another one of those nationally televised football games was Kansas football after dark, where they lost hmm. for, to the Coastal Carolina Chanticleers for the second season in a row and got their ass kicked. Iowa State, nationally televised game, lost to a very good but probably shouldn't be better that Iowa State in Ames team uh, on national TV. The only other, and then of course Texas Tech, the Longhorns' next opponent, had to struggle with FCS Houston Baptist. HBU. Which, trust me, even going even growing up in Houston, I knew nobody who went to Houston Baptist. <laughs> that's how kind of off the radar it is. People know what Rice is, and that's a small school. Nobody really knew. I didn't know anybody who went to Houston Baptist, but the only players I know, I think, are Caden Stern's little brothers. I think Joseph Osai may have a brother there as well. Texas Tech struggled with them, gave up huge amounts of yardage to the Huskies, and had to stave off a two-point attempt, I believe, at the end to make sure that they held on for a win. So, yeah. Aside from that, West Virginia, they kicked the crap out of Eastern Kentucky, but, you know, good for them. That's hmm. Not much going on there. It was not a good weekend for the Big 12, and it was kind of interesting seeing some Big 10 and other national media people make the, uh, oh, wow, the Big 12 had a worse season than the Big 10, and, you know, they're playing football. That type of joke, um, <laughs> That's no, that's not the case. But still, uh, that was definitely not the best day for the Big 12 if it's trying to prove its mettle as a conference in this weird year. Oh. What do you attribute that to? Do you think it was first game of the year stuff? You know, you know, what do you think? If you want to go game by game with it, let's go do that. Uh, it's just a horrible weekend for the Big 12, and it's funny, right? In the span of a couple of hours, the Big 12 went from America's favorite conference, right? The Big 12 was the swing vote on whether or not we'd have fall college football this year. We know the SEC and the ACC wanted to play. We know the Big 10 and the Pac-12 wanted to cancel. And we were all kind of waiting on the Big 12, right? If the Big 12 says yes, then we're going to play. If the Big 12 says no, then this whole thing might fall apart. The Big 12 says yes, everybody loves it. 
And then, yeah, they become the butt end of everybody's jokes within the span of a couple of hours on Saturday. Just abysmal. And this was supposed to be, you know, Cupcake Saturday for this conference, right? I mean, this league, and every league, it's not just the Big 12, but uh, this league removed a lot of tough non-conference games due to COVID-19. And most of the teams in this conference scheduled one relatively easy, at least on paper, opponent that they should have beaten to be a sort of guaranteed win in a tune-up game for conference play, and instead this league went 4-3 and three on Saturday. And, of course, you mentioned the two-point win for Texas Tech as a 40-point favorite against Houston Baptist, which, Joe, I think I had a couple of guys from my synagogue growing up who went to Houston Baptist, so there are a couple. <laughs> there are a couple Huskies that we know out there. But, man, I, I'm having a tough time. Like, I think the most embarrassing one has to be Texas Tech. I know they won, but the fact that you're a 40-point favorite and you only win by two – and Houston Baptist, I mean, they have to feel like they let one slip away. There were a couple of possessions. They had the ball inside the five-yard line, and they didn't score. And they lost the game by two. So if they just kick field goals there, if they're able to get three points out of those drives, then they win. They put up 600 yards of offense against Texas Tech. Like, even in a win, that has to be the most embarrassing to me. But right after that, a close second is Iowa State because this is a team, I mean, sort of a trendy pick to win the Big 12 this year, or at least get to the Big 12 championship game. And there were talks that this is Iowa State's best team ever. And to not only lose to Louisiana, and you said it, Louisiana's a great coach, Bill, or a great team. Billy Napier's a great coach who's going to be in a better spot sometime very, very soon. That's a double-digit win team from a year ago. But to lose that game by three scores at home as a 13-point favorite, and it could have been worse. Louisiana missed a couple of chip shot field goals. They also dropped a couple of easy interceptions. Like, it could have been worse than the 17 that it was, but with all the expectations for Iowa State to lose that game in that fashion to a, a Sun Belt team, that is really, really bad, really, really embarrassing. And uh, with a job Matt Campbell has done there has been phenomenal, but man, that one really, really hurts. He's now 5 and 11 in the month of September. I don't know what it is about Iowa State, but they are really, really sluggish out the gates, and uh, they showed that again on Saturday. That one hurts a lot. There are two things about that Iowa State game that really stick out to me, specifically about the Cyclones. Um, number one is that without Charlie Kolar, uh, their stud tight end, uh, who was out for that game, there's some help missing for Brock Purdy. There's not, you know, there's not a ton of elite, elite skill talent flocking to Ames, Iowa. Offensive line was going to be a question this year. But that was something that they had built and developed and recruited pretty well, even though they lost a few guys in the NFL. They had a good running back. And they've got Brock Purdy. They've got Kolar. But there's, once, once Kolar was out, there wasn't as much to really threaten the Raging Cajun defense. And, and I think you know maybe that'll be different with Kolar back and maybe Iowa, Iowa State start getting things rolling like they tend to do uh, throughout the course of the year. But that was one thing that was really concerning is that you know this is Power 5 versus, granted, very good group of five in a very talent-rich area. But still, they were not really getting – explosive plays or anything like that. The other thing that really stood out to me was at the very end of the game and that Matt Campbell basically rolled over and said, I'm done. Hmm. Didn't call timeouts, didn't try to save clock, didn't try to get back into the game. Basically just said, he just threw in the towel. And that, that's, I mean, yeah, I understand that, you know, at a certain point, it, it, it may, you're not going to come back. You know, if you're down 20 with a minute to go, you don't need to send the guy to the free throw line and try and make him miss the shots. You know, there, there's sometimes when it makes sense, sometimes when it doesn't. But at least, you know, call a timeout, something. 
do something to make it look like you're trying to win in that situation instead of rolling over to Louisiana. And I think that's a very subjective thing, yeah. honestly, and it's an off-field thing. But that's what really stuck out to me is that, you know, in this first game of the year against a quality opponent, that they just rolled over from the top of the program all the way down. And that's that's weird to me. I, 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 just, I just didn't get that in real time, and uh, I wonder – I wonder where that came from. Yeah, I don't think it bothers me as much as it does you, but I don't disagree with it at all. They did just kind of roll over and and raise the white flag on Saturday. Weird to see for sure. Uh, But, yeah, just an abysmal day. I mean, Kansas losing, it's no surprise. Especially after, especially after the Sun Belt went two and zero against the other Big Twelve teams, right? Like, if that happens, then you know Kansas is going to lose on Saturday night, and I can't believe they were favored in a football game. Like, I, I wish I gave the people, you know, my my lock of the day was right, and yours was wrong, by the way. So I'm one and zero, and you're zero and one. Oklahoma took care of business easily over Missouri State. They they only won by forty eight. They could have won by seventy eight if they really wanted to. But my lock of the week should have been. Kansas, or excuse me, Coastal Carolina plus six, and I probably would have gone money line for two points in our lock of the week standings. Uh, you know, anytime Kansas is favored in football, you go the other way. That's probably the only time it's going to happen this year, but no surprise there. And then K State, I mean, that's uh, some people thought they were kind of a wild card, uh, or at least a potential spoiler in the Big Twelve picture this year. Uh, they, they they lost. I mean, they got beat by Arkansas State. They were the better team on Saturday, and that's uh. That's a concern because Arkansas State, and they had the advantage of already playing a game. I think that definitely helped Arkansas State on Saturday. But they lost that game to Memphis, who's a very, very good G5 team, but they are a G5 team. So in terms of like the transitive property, that's not a great look for the Big 12 when Arkansas State loses to Memphis in the American, and then they go and beat K-State on the road uh, in Manhattan out of the Big 12. So yeah, I mean, it, it couldn't have been a worse start, but I've said it before, Joe. I think there are three teams fighting for two spots in this conference. I know Iowa State was a trendy pick. K-State, some people thought. TCU, some people thought. For me, it's Texas, Oklahoma, and Oklahoma State. We haven't seen the Cowboys yet, but the two teams that are in that mix, for me, took care of business on Saturday. Against weaker opponents, no doubt, but they took care of business, and I think that uh, furthers my argument that uh, it's probably three teams fighting for two spots in Arlington this year. I completely agree, and uh, we'll see what happens with Les Miles. I think I uh, forgot where I heard this. Might have been on the solid verbal, but that train is definitely hitched to the Kansas Athletic Department for a while. Jeff Long is all in on Les Miles. Les Miles is all in on being there, and, uh, you know, with the world around us, there's not a whole lot of money uh, available at Kansas to try and get rid of Les Miles mm-hmm. should uh, they see the need for it. So now nah, they shouldn't. Yeah, they the they should keep him. They should keep him around. They, they should keep him. He's building the program the right way. Like, he's he's going out and recruiting dudes, and he actually is following up on that. Like, David Beatty, when he took the job, he's like, oh, I'm not going the JUCO route. I'm not doing what Charlie Weiss did, right? I'm going to build this program with scholarship players, with four-year players. And then, well, David Beatty, after like one year of his team sucking, he starts going JUCO to try to save his job. So, I believe Les Miles is going to stick to the recruiting thing. He's I don't know who the hell else Kansas can get, so I think uh, I think he's there for a couple of years, and I don't think that's the worst thing in the world. Maybe uh, Bill Self should uh, share some. <laughs> if you, uh, oh uh, man, uh, I think you're kidding, but that might be a better option. <laughs> there's, a, there's a little bit of truth uh. in the joke. Um, last thing, I guess 
Do you have a lock of the week this week? Yeah, I'm looking right now. You know, no, we, we do have two Big 12 games. Oklahoma State will open up against Tulsa. And then Baylor-Houston, one of the best non-conference games uh, of the year, will happen this weekend. That should be a good one, getting to see the new-look uh, Baylor coaching staff. You have one off the top of your head? I mean, I'm scrolling through right now. I'm, I'm going to break my rule here, uh-huh. and I think it's only because Ken Niamatololo broke an extremely important rule of football in teaching his guys how to tackle. Now, I understand that the first job of the U.S. Naval Academy is to create future officers for the U.S. Navy, um, and that during a global pandemic, safety is priority, and, and, and especially with that job. And Ken Niamatololo said he didn't tackle at all during the lead-up to the season for, for safety, you know, for making sure that these guys were, I guess, in less contact and had less ex- chance of exposure than if they, you know, had tackled or something like that. So I understand that. It's a very unique job and uh, a very unique offense and very, just very unique everything with Navy football. And I normally say that academies cover. They play that ball control possession game, try to shorten the game, keep the ball away from other opponents, uh, you know, try to just run over people with that different offense and keep it going. Um, but, you know, if you don't – tackling issues like that are not going to get solved in one week, unfortunately. And, and BYU accentuated that. Just made them look silly, unfortunately. Uh, just beat them down. And Tulane, I don't think they're as talented as BYU, but they have a very, very efficient system uh, with their head coach. I'm slipping on his name there, but he's been there for – Willie Prince. He's been there for mm-hmm. a while. They have not exactly an option system, but a, a running system that is very effective in the American. And I don't think those maybe tackling issues will have solved themselves within a week or two weeks or however long it is in order for the midshipmen to stay inside the seven and a half number. So I'm going to go ahead and give Tulane uh, as my lock of the week. And I'm going to, uh, you know, with the points too, I think Tulane can – cover the seven and a half and I think they'll cover it easy. I mean hmm. thinking out thinking out loud here, I may I may buy a point or two and, and try and get a little bit have some friends get a little bit more money. Ah, I like that. I like that pick right there going with the green wave of Tulane. I'm gonna go with Central Florida on the road at Georgia Tech. I know Georgia Tech looked good. They spoiled Mike Norvell's debut as the head coach at Florida State. Georgia Tech is 1-0, and and they have played a game, and UCF has not played a game, so that scares me a little bit. But I'm really high on UCF, and I think they're a playoff contender this year. I think they've got a great shot of going undefeated. This is one of your best non-conference games of the year. I think UCF, despite it being a road game, despite Georgia Tech winning, I think they're going to cover the 7.5 and, and, uh, and beat the rambling wreck of Georgia Tech. This Saturday. So I'm going with uh, the Golden Knights of UCF as my pick, my lock of the week. I like that. I like that a lot. And here's here's one, I guess, small thing on that. I think Georgia Tech can kind of look at Central Florida and how they built their program and kind of model it the same way. Hmm. You know, they're in a very talent-rich area, Central Florida. Central Florida, uh, Georgia Tech is in the middle of Atlanta in the middle of Georgia where, you know, it's one of the better high school football states in the country. I think definitely one of the top four. Um, I think that they, there's a lot of, of the blueprint that Jeff Collins at Georgia Tech can look at at South Fl- or at Central Florida that Scott Frost and now what Josh Heifel, I believe, has, yep. has done uh, for, for the, the for Central Florida. So it'll be interesting. Georgia Tech, the program, I am really looking forward to seeing develop over the next few years just because – 
you know, unfortunately they're not running the option, but I think it is going to be better for the program. And, you know, maybe in a few years it will kind of be the opposite, and that Central Florida is the one going to Georgia Tech and, you know, really seeing how it's done with similar resources at the Power 5 level or a similar approach at the Power 5 level. But, man, I think that's it. We covered the whole game. We don't have a Texas game to look at this week, so we were able to really get into the weeds of what went on versus the minors. But uh, next week we will be back, and uh, we'll be talking about Texas versus Texas Tech in the opening of Big 12 play. Who knows? Maybe there will be Big 10 play future Big Ten play to talk about as well. But, uh, Brad, you got anything else before we uh, wrap it up and get out of here? No, nah, man, I think that's going to do it for this week's edition of the 1-N-O podcast. We appreciate the continued support. Go check out Everyone Gets a Trophy with Kevin and Paul as well. But thank you all for the love. Please continue to spread the word. And thanks to our sponsors, Audiovisual Consultations and Altstad Beer. Be sure to check out Joe's work at InsideTexas.com. Follow Joe on Twitter as well at josephcook89. Check out the work I do on the triple option with RBKD weekdays from 3 to 7 on the horn and hornfm.com and follow me on Twitter at Brad Kellner. Until next time, y'all stay safe, y'all stay healthy, and hook them.